season. Let's, uh, let's just pray as we open God's word this morning. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, that, that you want to speak to us, that you're present here by your spirit. Thank you for the things that you want to uh, pour into our hearts this morning. Prepare us, Lord Jesus. Those who are here, those who are online, would you accomplish your purposes and be glorified in us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I invite you to open to Philippians 2. If you're just with us today, we've been walking through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Philippi, and we're going to continue today looking at verses 19 to 30. Uh, Two years ago today, I was still in India. I had an amazing opportunity to travel to India and uh, travel across North India with uh, the leader of a church planting network there. We visited many churches, some, some amazing things. It was, it was an incredibly rich experience. Uh, established some relationships. In fact, just this morning I got a text message from a, an Indian pastor asking, how are things going here? And so just been in regular contact. Uh, on Tuesday I had the privilege of preaching over Zoom to a group of about 50 church planters. Been doing that uh, over the course of these years since I was there. It was an incredibly rich experience. And after India, it extended into Turkey. I went and visited our brother and our sister whom we're praying for, whom we're waiting uh, their arrival here and spent a few rich days. It was an incredibly rich experience. But it also had a lot of moments that could be described with the word ordinary. 18 flights, lots of sitting in airports, lots of sitting in planes, and trains and train platforms waiting for trains to arrive and sitting in train waiting to arrive. Lots of driving in different vehicles, though that, that was anything but ordinary. But, but there were lots of, in the midst of the richness of that experience, there was lots that was really ordinary. This morning we come to a passage in Paul's letter to Philippians that, that when we just take a quick look at it, it might strike us as being really ordinary. Like, what's the point, Paul? You're, you're telling us about some travel plans. How is this edifying? How is this important? We might be tempted to just pass over this text like this. You know, okay, let's get on to the real stuff. But what I want to contend to you this morning is that even here in the midst of this ordinary stuff, God has something extraordinary to say to us. He wants to challenge us and speak to us. And uh, it's not an insignificant text. By way of reminder, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that he planted himself about 12 years earlier. You can read the account of the founding of this church in Philippi, the first church in Europe uh, by Paul in Acts chapter 16. Paul planted it. He knows some of these believers personally. There's this deep personal relationship of love and care between Paul and the church. And now 12 years later, he writes this letter to them. Paul himself is right now in prison in Rome. He's been there for two years, chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier. Uh, He is awaiting trial before Caesar, not knowing for sure what his future holds, expecting that he'll be released, but not knowing with certainty. He's writing to the church in Philippi, uh, a church that is dealing with two, uh, two primary concerns that Paul addresses. One is that they are facing externally from people around them, they are facing opposition and they are beginning to suffer because of their faith in Jesus. They, as followers of Jesus, say, Jesus is Lord, while the citizens of Philippi, very loyal to Rome, uh, instead, they acclaim that Caesar is Lord. And so because of that, they are beginning to suffer external pressure, external opposition. But there is also a problem going on in this church internally. 
that is within the church, their, their relationships are not all well. There's tension, there's, there's some problems, some growing friction, not all out conflict yet, but there is problems relationally. And so Paul writes this letter to address that. Over the last section of the letter, Paul has been speaking primarily to that latter issue. He has been speaking to their relationships, how they are to live lives worthy of the gospel, how they are to uh, embrace the mindset of Christ. They are to think of the interests of others ahead of themselves. They are to value others ahead of themselves. They are to humbly, sacrificially love and serve one another like Jesus who humbled himself and left heaven and came to earth and became a man, and not only that, but, but obeyed even going to the cross to die for our sins. Paul has been calling them to that. Two weeks ago, the last time we were here together, he, he fleshed that out real practically and said, in, in everything, don't grumble, don't argue. He's calling them to oneness, to stand as one for the gospel in Philippi, to stand as one as, as God's people in this Roman a place to, to shine like stars in Philippi is his language. Now this morning, the passage moves on from, from that section of argumentation about their relationships with one another to what happens next. Paul has explained to them in the early part of the letter what's going on in his world, that he's still in prison. Remember, they don't have email and text and calls, so they didn't know what was going on. They knew Paul was in prison. Was he still in prison? Had he, had he been to trial? So he's explained his affairs to them. He's now addressed their affairs, what's going on in their life, in their church, in their relationships. And now he moves on to what is next, what comes next. So I invite you to follow along as I read Philippians 2, verses 19 to verse 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not, only on, not, not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow." Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. I want to walk through these verses to, with you under four headings. The first heading is the mundane uh, second, the motivation. Third, the models. And fourth, the mission. The mundane, the motivation, the models, and the mission. We begin with the mundane, the, the, the ordinary stuff, the, the travel plans. Paul tells them uh, about travel plans. And, and like I said, we might wonder, how is this important? But as I trust you will see, it actually lends itself to uh, something significant that God wants to say to us. Uh, Paul speaks here of three visits to the city of Philippi, if you notice. He speaks 
of the visit of Timothy. I want to send Timothy to you. He speaks that he thinks he will come soon. I'm going to come to Philippi. And he speaks about Epaphroditus coming to Philippi. Three visits he speaks about. When Paul writes this letter, all three of those visits lie in the future. But what we need to understand is that by the time the Philippians receive the letter and are reading it, only two of those visits are in the future. One of them has happened. And that's the visit of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus actually is with Paul in Rome as Paul writes this letter. And then Paul sends this letter with Epaphroditus back to Philippi. He is the courier, if you will, bringing it to them. Uh, which might make you wonder why chronologically Paul doesn't go in the order that things happen. He starts by talking about Timothy's visit. Then he mentions that he hopes to visit soon. And then lastly, he speaks about Epaphroditus' visit, which actually comes first. So the chronology's off. Why, why is that? Well, Paul's not concerned here about chronology, and we'll see as we walk through this, the significance of, of his order. Let me say a, a, take a few moments to talk about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is mentioned only two times in the New Testament, both times in this letter, here in chapter 2 and later on in chapter 4. Uh, what we discover in chapter 4 is that Epaphroditus is actually from the church in Philippi. He is their messenger. The church in Philippi sent Epaphroditus to Rome, to Paul, bearing gifts which is one of the reasons Paul writes this letter, is to thank the church in Philippi for their support. Really significant that in a, a day and age where the state did not look after the, the needs of prisoners, they didn't provide food, they didn't provide for the needs of prisoners, not like our prison system here in Canada. Uh, those, those daily needs, food and things, had to be provided by family or by friends. And so this church gave generously to support Paul and they sent that gift by Epaphroditus to Rome. And so Paul, at the end of the letter, is going to give thanks to them for that. And here's what we read uh, in chapter 4, verse 18. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied uh, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Epaphroditus is from Philippi. They know him. They sent him uh, to Paul. And so uh, that's important to note. And that this church also is very generous. They support Paul here. He thanks them. But also in 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks about this church and their generosity in giving towards the believers in Jerusalem. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says, out of their poverty, they, they begged for the right, the privilege of giving. So this church generously gave to support Paul. They generously gave to support the church in Jerusalem. They, they're, they're generous towards gospel ministry and the advance of the gospel. Now, with that said, let's look at what Paul says in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. Remember, when they receive this letter, it's Epaphroditus who has brought it to them. He is already back in Philippi. Um, and so we can ask some questions about this. Paul says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon, having just sent Epaphroditus. So maybe you're like me and you go, why didn't he send them together? Like, I mean, Epaphroditus would not have traveled alone. There would have been some other men uh, knowing the sum of money that he was carrying. There would have been others in his party. Why not send Timothy at the same time? Well, we find the answer to that in verse 23, where Paul says again, speaking about this, I hope, therefore, to send Timothy, send him as soon as I see how things go with me. 
And I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Remember, Paul's in prison. He is awaiting trial before Caesar. He expects that that will happen soon. And so he doesn't send Timothy now. He wants to send Timothy after he knows how his trial goes so that Timothy can bring a message to the church and tell them, here's what's going on for Paul. Now that could also prompt the question, well, why not wait to send Epaphroditus after the trial too so they can go together? Well, that, that answer we will discover here in a moment. I want you to remember the, the answer to that is, is borne out in the situation in the church that Paul has just been addressing over the last section of the letter. What has he been talking about? He's been calling them to embrace the mindset of Christ. He's been addressing this issue of internal, uh, internal conflict, this internal tension, the relational tension. And, and so Paul wants to address that immediately. He knows that it, it, if not addressed, if not corrected, it will continue to grow and become a more significant problem in this church and, and a greater and greater hindrance to gospel ministry in Philippi. And so Paul wants to address it. See, it's Epaphroditus who told Paul what's going on in the church. Epaphroditus came from there bearing gifts, and he's the one that would have told Paul there's this opposition that the church is facing. They're starting to be suffering. And also, Paul, there, there's this this internal stuff going on in the church. Relationships within the church are not all well. And so Paul knows that. He's writing to address that, recognizing it's a problem, and he wants to address it forthrightly. So he sends Epaphroditus now. That's one of his reasons. We'll get to another one in a moment. And he'll send Timothy in a little bit, as soon as he knows what goes on with his trial, so he can share that message, because that was how things were communicated. So it's really important for us to understand that that he wants to deal with this relational stuff. And so that's why he sends the letter now. And that, that leads us actually to the motivation for, behind these travel plans. Look with me again at verse 19. I'm going to read the whole verse this time. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I may be cheered when I receive news about you. So understand the situation again. Epaphroditus came to Paul. He reported what was going on. Paul wants to address this relational conflict, so he writes this letter, sends it back with Epaphroditus, and he's going to send Timothy. As soon as he knows what goes on in the trial, he's going to send Timothy, and his hope is that he will be cheered. So here's what Paul's hoping for. Paul writes this letter to address this internal conflict, this tension. He calls them to have the mindset of Christ, to value others above themselves. No room for selfish ambition in the church, he says. He sends that letter, and then he's going to send Timothy a short while after, and he hopes that when Timothy comes back, Timothy will be bearing good news that the church received that message, that they took it to heart, and that they are beginning to live as they are called to, that they are beginning to put the interests of others ahead of their own interests, that they are, they are, they are embracing the mindset of Christ. He wants Timothy to come back and report that good news. That's his hope, that I will be cheered that Timothy will come back with good news, that they will be conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they will be standing as one in the spirit, that they will be contending together as one for the gospel, that, that this tension, this internal striving and posturing, the pride that is infested the church, that, that is, is taking root in the church and causing relational dissension, that that will have been put aside. That there will have been repentance and a coming together and an embracing the mindset of Christ. 
And so what that reveals, that this is Paul's strategy for these, these visits, per, first Epaphroditus with a the letter, then Timothy to go and report on Paul to them, but also report on them back to Paul before he hopes to go the third visit. It, it reveals to us again the ultimate concern that Paul has. And the ultimate concern that Paul has is that they would be faithful as God's people in Philippi for the advance of the gospel. Remember, he said, no more arguing and grumbling so that you may shine like stars in the sky. They are God's people in Philippi. They are those who bear witness to Christ. They are those who, in both word and deed, bear witness to the hope that is found only in Jesus. And they are God's people. They are, they are alone as God's people in the city of Philippi, in the midst of a wicked, a crooked and wicked generation. They are to bear witness in the midst of the darkness. Paul longs for Jesus to be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul longs for the good news about Jesus, salvation through faith in Jesus, to be proclaimed everywhere. If you're with us this morning and you don't know Jesus, you've never put your faith in Jesus, here is the heart of the Christian faith. Christianity is not about cleaning ourselves up and being good enough for God so that God will accept us. Christianity says that we are so broken, that we are so rebellious, that there is nothing we can do to fix things. But God, in his love, uh, became a man in the person of his son, Jesus, came to earth. Paul just spoke about this. He described the cosmic drama of this in, a little bit earlier in chapter 2. Jesus, who was God, with God in the beginning, was God in the beginning, became a man, put on flesh, and came and dwelt among us. Not only that, but he obeyed the Father as we were called to, and, and he was then arrested. And he was convicted for insurrection, rebellion. And he was whipped and he was nailed to the Roman cross and he died the death that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And, and, and while on the cross, God poured out his wrath that you and I deserve, that is God's holy uh, judgment for our sin onto Christ. Christ willingly out of love, the love of the Father and the love of the Son and the love of the Spirit, uh, Jesus bore that in our place so that when we trust in Jesus, we come to Jesus and say, Jesus I have nothing to offer you. I'm broken. I'm rebellious. I, I need your grace. I need your mercy. It is lavished upon us. Because God loves us. And God wants to rescue us from our sin and rebellion. He wants to adopt us as his daughters and his sons. And, and, and we can't fix what's broken, but Christ on the cross has made a way. And so we're called simply to surrender, to receive his grace, to receive his mercy. And when we do that, the Bible tells us that we, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That we were children of wrath, now we're children of God adopted through what Christ did, not through what we do. And, and, and then the Christian life, once we receive God's grace, once we receive his free gift of salvation, the Christian life is, is then engaging in learning to live out of that new identity, learning to live in a way that is congruent with who we are in Jesus. And, and that's what Paul's talking about here. Like, This isn't about how we be saved. Do these things so that you're saved. It's because you're saved, here's what you're called to do. We talked about that last week. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling isn't somehow achieving your salvation by your own efforts. It's about learning to live in a way that is congruent with the salvation that you've received. And even that, even our obedience is empowered by God. It's God's work in us. So Paul's ultimate concern is the proclamation of the gospel. That the Philippians would faithfully live as God's people in Philippi, in this colony of Rome that desperately needs Jesus. 
That's his goal. And so that's why he sends this letter with Epaphroditus to Philippi. That's why he will send Timothy to, to get a report. Did you hear what Christ is calling you to? Have you responded in repentance and obedience? Are you growing as God's people? Are you embracing the mindset of Christ? Are you thinking of others rather than yourself? Have you put away selfish ambition, self-centeredness? Paul hopes to be cheered by this report. He hopes that Timothy will come back and he'll say, Paul, they are shining like stars in a dark night sky. They are living faithfully as your people, as, as God's people, Christ's people in Philippi. Turn to our third heading, the models. We've looked at what Paul talks about describing the travel plans and, and unpacking why those plans are important. We've looked at Paul's motivation not only to inform them, but in hopes that he will be cheered by their obedience. Now let's turn to the third heading, the models. Paul's deep desire is that the Philippians, that these believers and we as readers of this text, that we would have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel, lives that are congruent with the good news, that we are redeemed through Christ, that we, we died and now Christ lives in us, that, that we would shine like stars. That's his desire for them. That's, that's Christ's desire for us. And, and in here within these verses where Paul speaks of these mundane things, these travel plans and his hopes. Paul holds up these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as examples, as models for the church in Philippi, as models for you and I. Models of, of what it looks like to live out what he's calling them to, what God is calling them to. Let's survey what, how Paul describes them. He speaks of Timothy first. Verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Now, does that not sound remarkably similar to what he has just said earlier in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he wrote, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. I have no one else like Timothy who, gen, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Here's a man, here's an example, here's a model, he says, of someone who is doing this, who's doing what I'm calling you to do, you as believers. And, and, and I want to draw your attention to a really important fact here. Paul is not simply commending Timothy to them as some kind of special elite Christian. No, all Christians, all believers, every disciple of Christ is called to this. Sometimes we, we believe things that are not true. There's not two classes of Christians, you know, those who are really committed and then sort of normal Christians. No, all of us are called to this. Paul's not saying, hey, look at Timothy, Pastor Timothy. Timothy served as a pastor, but, but he, he's, what, he's, what Timothy is exemplifying is precisely what he's called all of them to do. It's level ground at the foot of the cross, and all of us are, all of us, do you know this? All of us are called into full-time ministry. It may not be full-time vocational ministry, but all of us are called to engage in gospel work. And here he holds up Timothy and says, here's someone who is doing what I've been calling you to do. He, he genuinely cares for your welfare. He's putting your welfare ahead of his own. Paul goes on in verse 21, in contrast, Timothy, he says that Timothy does what, uh, in contrast what Timothy does, sorry, with what everyone else does. Um, he says this, 
For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's contrasting Timothy's not like that. Now, this everyone, I, I, want, I want us just to think about this for a moment. Paul is not here absolutizing this. He's not saying there is not a single other person who does what Timothy does. Only Timothy does it. This is uh, rhetoric at some point, uh, at some level. It's, it's exaggeration. He, he's he's going to say in a few moments, he's going to commend Epaphroditus to them. So it's not that Timothy is the only one, but he's holding up Timothy as a model of something in contrast to what many, many in our world, certainly the normal pattern is for us to live selfishly, to live self-centered lives. And that's even in the church often, right? That creeps in. In fact, earlier in Philippians, remember Paul spoke of those in the church who were preaching Christ out of wrong motives, wanting to stir up trouble for Paul. And Paul was grateful that the gospel was being proclaimed, but those motives were wrong. And so where there is selfishness, where there is self-centeredness, even in the church, in our lives, Paul calls that out and says, Timothy is not doing what, what everyone does so easily, what, what is the normal human pattern of behavior. And so he holds him up as a model for them, an example to follow. To add to these, Paul adds the fact that Timothy has been tested. Verse 22, but you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Timothy has worked side by side with Paul for years. He has endured difficulties. He has, he has engaged in hard gospel work. He has proven himself. He has stood the test. And so Timothy, of course, is not actually Paul's son. Paul met Timothy when Timothy was just young, Beginning of Acts chapter 16, Timothy began to travel with Paul. And, and Paul speaks of him as a son because Timothy has labored with him as a son, if you will. And, and just as a son may resemble his father and behave like his father, that's what he's saying. Timothy has followed me. He looks like me. He does like me. I have every confidence in him that he has grown. And so he has every confidence in sending Timothy to the, to the believers in Philippi and holding him up as a model of, for them that their lives are to be transformed more and more into those who, who put the interests of others ahead of their own, who have the mindset of Christ, whose lives look like Timothy's. Paul also goes on and he commends Epaphroditus to the believers. Now, they, some people think that's odd since they already know him. He's from their church after all. But nonetheless, Paul does. He holds him up to, before them and calls them to honor him and those like him. And there are a number of words that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus. He calls him my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, and also your messenger. Listen to what he says in, in our text. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Before we look at the details uh, around uh, the words that Paul uses, let me remind you of something. Remember, Epaphroditus is from Philippi. He is their messenger sent with the financial provisions for Paul in prison. And clearly, uh, their distress over his illness when they heard that he was sick uh, reveals that, they, that he is deeply loved by this church. He's part of their church. They deeply love him. And they receive word that he is ill. Not just ill, but deathly ill. He's on death's door. And uh, they're incredibly anxious. They're, they're distressed for their brother. And, and here's what I want you to notice is Epaphroditus' response. Epaphroditus hears 
their distress because of his illness. And he's distressed for their anxiety. He's distressed because of how worried they are. He's not concerned about himself. He's worried about them. When I was in college, I was 20. I woke up in the dorm one morning with incredible pain in my abdomen. I didn't know what was going on. I'd never felt anything like that. And in desperation, I gave my car keys and my wallet to some friends. I said, go to the pharmacy, get me whatever you think might help. They came back with a bag full of a bunch of laxatives. I began reading the boxes, and, and at least one of them I remember saying, do not take if you have severe abdominal pain. So I didn't take them. <laughs> Sorry, the story's not going where you think it's going. Instead, I had a friend drive me to the hospital. I, I was desperate. I was in, in such agony by that time. And they, they brought me in straight into the ER. They looked at me, did a quick exam, said, you, you need surgery. Your appendix is about to burst. They put me on a gurney and rolled me out of the ER towards the OR. And my friend, one of the friends who, who had driven me, he was standing there and he, he looked white as a ghost. And, and he was so anxious for me. And, and I remember laying there just thinking, and I said to him, I said, Phil, don't worry. I know where I'm going, which didn't help. That's kind of the idea here. Epaphroditus is sick to the point of death, and he's worried for these believers who are distressed because he's sick. He cares deeply for them. And so one of the reasons Paul sends him, not only will he bring this letter to them to bring the correction to their, their relational strife, the tension in the church, but also it will relieve their anxiety for him. They'll know they'll receive him back now well. Remember this journey, we, we don't know for sure what this illness was or, or exactly how things transpired. The journey between Philippi and Rome was 800 miles. It would have taken about six weeks. Because of the way Paul speaks about Epaphroditus risking his life to accomplish this mission, it is likely that Epaphroditus got sick along the way. And rather than giving up, rather than turning around, he pressed on. And he got sicker and sicker. And he finally arrives in Rome on death's door, delivers this gift to Paul. and By God's mercy, God spares Paul and the Philippians the sorrow upon sorrow, and he grants healing. Uh, understand that in the ancient world, when you got to death's door, almost always people walked through that door, right? Like, there wasn't a lot of recoveries when you were that sick. But God, Paul says, showed mercy and granted recovery, and then he sends Epaphroditus uh, this man who loves this church, who was deeply distressed for their distress, sends him back. Paul says he risked his life in order to achieve this task given to him, to bring this gift all the way to Paul in Rome, to help advance the gospel by supporting Paul. Epaphroditus was all in. Three words Paul uses describing him. He speaks of him as, as my brother. What we are reminded of is that as Christians, as those who trust Jesus, we are brought into a family. These are not just words. We are to love one another as sisters and brothers. Uh, all the barriers that pull us apart, that divide us, whatever those might be, they're, they're put aside and we are family. He speaks of Epaphroditus as my brother. He is his co-worker. He is laboring with Paul. He is working for Jesus. Uh, our Christian faith is not merely mental assent to a set of doctrines. Yes, we 
believe in Christ. We, we are to believe the truth about Christ, the truth about us. Doctrine matters. I'm not suggesting that. But Christianity is more than merely giving mental assent to a set of doctrines, crossing some line, saying some prayer, and then just going on your jolly way and thinking, someday when I die, I'll go to be with Jesus in heaven. No, the Christian life is a life of engagement in his mission. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Epaphroditus is giving his life to the gospel work. He is a co-worker. He's invested. He's risked his life. He's all in. He's a fellow soldier. And here Paul employs this military metaphor that gets at an important truth that we are engaged in a spiritual battle. That we have a spiritual enemy, God's enemy, Satan, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to drag as many people down as he can. And so as we engage in Christian ministry, proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Christ, he is enraged. We see that in Revelation, you may remember. If you were with us in our study of the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the dragon that represents Satan. We, we read this. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, that is Israel, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Satan is enraged. And he's making war against God's people and wants to throw up roadblocks and obstacles as we strive to labor for Christ in the advance of the gospel. Paul holds up these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as models for the church in Philippi. Here's what it looks like to embrace the mindset of Christ, the humility of Christ, to sacrificially love and serve and engage in the ministry that you're called to as my people. To shine like stars in the midst of the darkness. And that leads us to the fourth heading this morning. And that is the mission. The mission that Christ calls you and I to. What is it? It's not a rhetorical question. What is it that Jesus is saying to you this morning? Is it not to do exactly what Paul here was calling the Philippians to do? Is it not to do what these men exemplify? To show genuine concern for the welfare of others. To look out for the interests of others rather than our own interests. To embrace the mindset of Christ who humbled Himself even to death on the cross out of love for us, to, to live as family, to labor for the sake of the gospel, to, to, to endure whatever inevitable difficulties come our way in gospel ministries, and in fact, to risk all, to risk even our lives. Jesus in Mark chapter 8 says that if whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What's Jesus saying to you? I really believe that Christianity here in the West, that the, the, the Spirit of God wants to rouse us. I, I believe in, in many ways, and I feel this conviction in my own life, that in many ways we blend in with our culture that we are in many ways discipled maybe more by our culture than by Christ through his word. Discipled by advertisement, discipled by television, discipled by the news we read. What, what is shaping us? 
What? What sacrifices is Jesus calling you to make? What hard gospel work is Jesus calling you to engage in? What will it look for you to put the interests of others ahead of your own? Like, stop and think about that. God, where, where am I living really for my own interests? What will it look like? What will it look like in my calendar? What will it look like in my checkbook or online bank statement or whatever for the younger people? What, what will it look like for me to put the interests of others ahead of my own? And, and the, the interests of Christ, to pour myself out laboring for Christ, to risk all for Christ. It doesn't mean that we all go overseas on missions. It doesn't mean that everyone goes into full-time vocational ministry. But we are called to embrace the mindset of Christ, who humbled himself out of love to serve. He sacrificed. Paul holds up Timothy and he holds up Epaphroditus as models for us. And this isn't just models for some special class of Christians, the elite. This is for all of us. We are all called into this. Again, please don't hear what I'm not saying. This isn't in order that we would be saved. It's because we're already saved. This passage isn't about how to be saved. It's about how saved people are to live. And so I ask it again. What's Jesus saying to you today? What changes does Jesus want to bring in your life today? I want to learn to do this both as I speak to you and in my, my own life. I do this as I read God's word. I say, Lord, what are you saying? What do you, what do you want me to do in response? I, I pray that we don't gather here just to hear God's word and we go home unchanged, but that we would come and say, Jesus, speak to me, change me, challenge me, transform me, encourage me, remind me of the truths of the gospel and who you are and who I am in you that we would leave change. So what is Jesus saying to you? What does it look like for you this week, this afternoon, to go home and say, okay, I gotta put the interests of others ahead of my own interests. I gotta put the interests of Jesus ahead. I mean, this text might look like mundane stuff about travel plans, but this is really about what has been driving this whole letter, and that is Paul's desire to see Christ proclaimed, to see the gospel advance, and that is our mission. That's what we are about as God's people. And so what is Jesus calling you to? And I want to encourage you maybe even to take this risk and to ask one another, what's Jesus calling you to? And, and, and then we encourage one another in obedience. Jesus is calling me to take this step. Jesus is calling me to sacrifice this. Jesus is calling me to engage in this. What does it look like for us to hear the voice of Christ and follow in obedience and submission to hear his word for the advance of the gospel here in Edmonton, and for the glory of his name. Amen.